And now if you have children who are from the ages of 4 to 7, you can send them to Children's Church. Mrs. Brister in the back there. The rest of us can turn to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter and chapter 4. We're nearing the end of our series here. The end of January will be finished and perhaps a little bit in preparation for what February will bring. We will be beginning a journey through 1st and 2nd Kings. And we will be dealing with substantially larger passages than we have been here in Peter. So this morning we have uh, a relatively long section with a, a short intermission that we will deal with next week. So if you would please give your attention to the reading of God's Word as we look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and then again 12 through 19. Hear now the very Word of God that is inerrant, infallible, sufficient, and authoritative for our lives. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And now to verse 12. Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with this, your word. Lord, we ask that you would meet us this morning in these words of Peter that by the power of your Spirit you might affect our very lives, our habits, even our wills. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a story.
may be apocryphal, but it's likely one that even if is apocryphal is also true and has happened. There's a story of a young boy who was born on the 4th of July. And he grew up and learned how to walk and learned how to talk. And one day, he was out with his parents. He was maybe five years old, walking in the park on his birthday. And they were walking in the evening. And he looked up at his parents and he beamed and he said, Mom! Dad! Everyone knows it's my birthday. What? Well, look, they set off fireworks just for me. It's my birthday, and they set off fireworks for me. Well, of course, you know that it's the 4th of July, and the fireworks were for the holiday, but not so for that young boy. And oftentimes, that can be the perspective that we as Christians have upon our lives. We think that everything is intended for us. And all our circumstances are about us. We look, things happen, and we try and discern what God is telling us or what God would have us to do. Not even contemplating, perhaps, that God has a purpose that is larger than us, that we are just a piece in the picture. And that's especially comforting when we, when we come to think about suffering. Because as we face difficulties, whether they be physical or mental or circumstantial, we tend to focus upon those difficulties and focus upon ourselves. And think again, it's all about us. Oh, what did I do to bring this upon myself? Oh, how will I ever get out of this? What will I ever do? Why is God doing this to me? When you see what Peter says to his flock, what I would say to you, Christians, is that very often our suffering is not really about us at all. It's about God and His glory. Bringing glory to God through our suffering and through the way in which God brings us to a point where we cease from sin. Not in complete perfection, but where we desire to be more and more like Jesus and less and less like the people we used to be. And so in these two passages that I've knit together, I'd like us to look at and contemplate suffering as it relates to sin and to God. The first thing that I would have us see in these first six verses is that Christ's suffering breaks sin. Christ's suffering breaks sin. And then we'll see, beginning in verse 12, that our suffering makes us like Christ. The one who has broken sin, our suffering conforms us, makes us like Christ. And then finally we'll see that another thing that our suffering does is our suffering makes us look to God. So we'll look at Christ's suffering, God using our suffering in conforming us to Christ, and then God using our suffering to point us to Himself. Let's look then first at verse 1 and Christ breaking sin through His suffering. The first thing that we see here is the power of sin broken. Christ's suffering breaks sin and it breaks sin's power first of all. Look at how the passage begins. 
Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Peter is about to begin an extended passage on suffering, and do you see the causal connection that he starts with? He says, because it's a fact, because you know that Christ has suffered, you should act in a certain way. You will have certain results, certain things the Lord will bring about. And this all comes from Jesus Christ's death. It is a motivation for all our actions in ceasing from sin, in desiring to obey God's law, in gaining confidence and assurance from God's word. It's found in the suffering of Christ. And so Peter says, because Jesus has suffered in the flesh, you need to do something. You need to arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The power of sin has been broken by Christ's suffering, and that means that you have a renewed mind. You need to take up the mind of Christ. You need to arm yourself with the same way of thinking that Jesus had. This word here for way of thinking is the same word that's used in Hebrews 4 of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, it's not just a cognitive thing. It's an entire way of setting your mind. It sets you up for how you act. And you are to arm yourselves. Now, that reminds us that we're still in the middle of a battle, doesn't it? We can't say to ourselves, oh, well, Jesus died. Jesus died for me. Therefore, everything comes up roses. I'll expect that raise tomorrow. And by the way, I'll expect my children to obey voluntarily tomorrow. And, of course, my wife or my husband will be the most understanding person on the face of earth because that's what Jesus did for me, to give me a perfect life. Right? No, Peter says, arm yourselves. There's a battle at hand. There's difficulties. Christ died so that you might be ready to enter the battle. And the imagery that he uses is wonderful. The word here in the Greek that's used for arm yourselves is actually be like a hoplite. Now, some of you may know this because there's been a resurgence in things ancient Greek in movies and books. The hoplites were not just any old soldier. You see, in Peter's day, there really wasn't such a thing as a professional army. People didn't go off to Korea like Christopher did and then travel halfway around the world to Germany. They would, in time of battle in the spring, pick up a pickaxe or a a shearing knife or a fork or something and go out into the field and fight. Not so the hoplites. They were trained. They were trained in the heavy armor of the day. Those are the guys you see in the movies with the gigantic shields and the 12-foot-long spears. And they don't just go out and fight. They go together as one solid wall. These are the crack troops of the ancient world. These are the troops that when they show up on the battlefield, the enemy runs. Because they know if you have cavalry and the horses charge them, they break on the hoplites like water on a wall. The huge shields go up. Someone with a sword can't even get in a blow because the spear goes out 12 feet. This is a solid mass of crack troops. You might think of it the way we think of our crack Marines or Green Berets. Nobody wants to mess with them. That's the kind of mind that Jesus would have you have in the battle. You see that? 
But it's not just that you are the best. That's not really what Peter's getting at. What made the Hoplites special was not because they were all incredible individualistic warriors. It was not a thousand Bruce Lees running around, karate chopping people. No. The entire thing that made the Hoplites powerful was that they stood together. They never broke ranks. You know what defended you? Your mate's shield. His left arm protected you, and you poked out under his shield, and so on. You were completely dependent on each other. That is the mind that the Christian is to have. Dependent upon each other, drawing upon each other for strength in the battle to come. The mind being renewed by Christ. But it's not just the mind that's renewed, it's the will that's renewed as well. Because we are to arm ourselves so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God, Peter says. You see, being dead with Christ frees us from the dominion of sin. Because Christ has died, because Christ has suffered, the result is you no longer live in the flesh for your own passions. You live for the will of God. Your will is transformed from what it used to be to being in conformity with the will of God. We desire the things that God desires. You see, a commitment to bear up under suffering and a commitment to suffer is the best evidence of having broken with sin because it's imitating the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ not only breaks the power of sin in our life, takes us out from under its dominion, but he breaks the love of sin. The love of sin is broken. Look here again at verse 2, that we are so as, not to, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The first thing that happens to us is we lose this love of sin. A love of sin is broken by the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have changed priorities. Do you notice what Peter says? No longer do you do this, but instead that. You see, Peter is not saying, well, I know you all. You're the cream of the crop. You always obeyed. You were always perfect, right? You know that kind of mentality. It's usually, forgive me, John and Mary, it's a grandparent's mentality. When, when I say to my parents how difficult the children have been, they look at me and they go, oh, they're always perfect. And you look and you say, what reality are you living in? You see, Peter says the same thing. He says, don't think you were always perfect. But no longer do you have those priorities. Now you have new priorities. You acknowledge your sins of your past and you move on. That's a very important aspect of the Christian life. Moving on past sin. Because you have new priorities. We might think of it in kind of a humorous vignette. Have you ever been, perhaps it's early college, perhaps it's you've just graduated from college, and the first one or two of your buddies to get married, and you say things like, let's go bowling. And they go, I don't know. I'll have to call home and check. Or you say, come on, let's go spend a week out camping. And he says, I'm not really sure. I don't think I can. And you see, in humor, we think, oh, this man, his wife tells him what to do. He's got to ask for permission. But you see, in reality, it's not permission as much as a change of priorities. You can't spend money like you used to when you're married because you have different priorities. You have to put food on the table. You have to keep a roof over, the, over your head. You can't 
Just go off gallivanting and do whatever you want because you have children to be responsible for. You have changed priorities. That's what happens to the Christian. You can't live the life that you lived before you knew Jesus Christ because your priorities are changed. You don't want to. And instead, we are to direct all of the time that we have left. That may be two years. It may be 20 years. It may be 60 years. Notice what Peter says. He says, The time that has passed suffices, but instead we are to do the will of God. We are to live the rest of the time, in verse 2, for the will of God. All that remains, Peter says, every little bit of it, we are to live for the will of God. Have you numbered your days? Whether they be short, perhaps, that you think, or long? Have you committed in your will to give them to Christ? Do you make major decisions based upon the will of God rather than your own passions? You see, this is enough to make us uncomfortable. And I can press Peter's point home. You young people that are thinking about college, did you choose a college based upon your spiritual life and the church that's in town and your ability to grow in Christ? Or did you choose it based on a football team? Or the way the dorm looks? Or because you like the colors? Or maybe even something the world would think is better, like graduation rates and job placement rates. Adults, did you choose your home based upon where you can minister to others? Where you can be wise stewards? Or did you choose it based on the way the driveway looks? Or the carpet? or the hardwood floors? Did you choose your job based upon the chance that you will get raises? Or did you choose it based upon where you can go to church? Whether or not you will be asked to act unethically? You see, we have to have the right priorities. That doesn't mean we can't like a house because of the carpet or the, or the wood or the placement. It doesn't mean we can't love our football team from college. What it means is we put first things first and second things second. That's what it means to make the love of sin broken. It's not just that we have changed priorities, though. We also have changed desires. The time that has passed suffices, Peter says, for the way you used to live. Have you had enough of sin? Are you ready to move on? Do you know that sin doesn't satisfy? If you've been in Christ, then you know that's the case. You see, Peter shows how horrible sin is. He paints it in all its blackness, sensualities, passions, drunkenness, orgies. He says this is the end of sin. Our desires are changed. It's like having eaten good food... And then you can't go back to mystery meat anymore. You just can't because your desires are different. But that also means that our company must be changed as well. We have changed priorities, a changed desire, but we also have changed company. He says, listen, you don't join them. You don't go out and do these things with others. And you see, sin has so mastered unbelievers that they can't understand why you wouldn't want to. They don't get it. And that can lead to suffering, if we're honest about it, right? Perhaps an illustration will help. It would be, for example, I'll use a, a regional example. If you had been a UT fan your whole life, 
You love the University of Texas. You bleed orange. And all of a sudden, one day you woke up and you said, you know what? I'm going to root for A&M. And you go out and you buy all maroon. And you put something different on your car. And you change everything about your house. All the Texas stuff is out. All the A&M stuff is in. And then you go to the big game. You see all your buddies, but you're wearing maroon and not orange. And they look at you and they say, are you nuts? There might even be a fist fight that would break out, right? A&M folks, you can reverse the names and it'd be the same way, right? But you see, they're surprised. Everything that you used to do, you've given up on. All of your previous likes aren't your likes anymore. And you see, that's what can happen to the Christian as he takes a stand for the Word of God. This is especially true for those of us that have lived longer outside the church. We have family members that look at us and they don't understand why we do the things we do. We have friends that we meet back up with and they don't know why we're doing what we're doing. You see, this has changed company. And then finally, Jesus Christ's death breaks the judgment for sin. Look at verse 4 and 5. They malign you, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge. You see, judgment is real and it will not go away. And the reality of that judgment shows the folly of sin. As a matter of fact, that judgment is so real that that is the reason why, Peter says, the gospel was preached. Jesus died that the gospel might be preached to those who are caught up in this sin, that sin might be broken and that it might be taken from them, that they might be made anew. And that's not just a comfort to you and to me, to those of us who are in Christ. That is hope for our evangelism, isn't it? That Jesus died that others might know that sin has been broken in its power, in its love, and in its judgment. Well, then we look at verse 12, and we see that our suffering has more to do with Jesus than we think. Our suffering makes us like Christ the one who suffered on our behalf. And the first thing that it does for us is it helps us to understand God's purpose. Look at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. You see, thinking about Christ's suffering and the way that he broke the power of sin prepares us for our own suffering. You see, we see that suffering is not always a judgment from God. It is not always a judgment upon those whom God hates. Suffering can have a purpose, an eternal purpose. And you see, this is not something new. Some commentators think, as they think about two or three or four Peters writing this letter, or it's not Peter, it's someone else, and it's written 200 years later, they think that what happened is maybe Peter got the ancient equivalent of a CNN news bulletin, that now the suffering got really bad, so we better address this now. But in reality, this is just part of Peter's theme of this whole letter. Don't be surprised when things come to you that came to Jesus. Because your goal should be to be like Jesus. Don't be surprised about it. Expect it. Expect suffering not just because the world is miserable, but because God is at work in the world. And if we understand God's purpose in suffering like Jesus did, we will see the good that comes of it. You see, Peter says something here. Don't be surprised as though something 
strange were happening to you. Now, what Peter means there is not something odd, unusual. It's not that you would suffer because people would randomly show up in the marketplace and hit you in the face with a fish. That's strange. No. He means strange in the sense of being completely different and odd. This is the word that's used of a stranger, a foreigner. You see what Peter's saying? Don't be surprised. Like, this is something strange and foreign to the will of God. When suffering comes on you, don't go looking around all the time to find out, how am I outside of the will of God? Rather, look for the Lord in your circumstances. And that can cause us to rejoice. If nothing else, Peter says, rejoice that we are sharing in Christ's sufferings. You see that? In verse 13, we're to rejoice insofar as we share Christ's sufferings. And we can rejoice and be glad because Christ's glory is revealed. That's the attitude that Jesus had going to the cross. He wanted the Father's will to be done. He wanted the Father's glory to be seen as the one who is just and the justifier of the ungodly. That should be our attitude when difficulties face us. How can the Lord God be glorified? We can also have the mind of Christ in us by understanding that God desires to know us and to know who we are. If we're insulted for the name of Christ, we are blessed for the spirit of glory and the spirit of God rests upon us. You see, God meets with us in suffering. You think about this all the time in ordinary illustrations, don't you? If you see a ring with what purports to be a diamond in it, and you're not a jeweler, what's one way you could tell, perhaps, if it's a diamond? Well, the old-fashioned way is you take it, you find a piece of glass, and you see if you can cut a hole in a piece of glass, right? The diamond stands up to the stress point, doesn't it? What if it's costume jewelry? Crumbles up, doesn't it? Does it meet the test of the pressure point? God meets with us, shows us that we have real faith in the midst of our suffering. Being like Jesus also means understanding God's judgment. Look here at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? You see, judgment starts in the church, Peter says. If we know Jesus Christ and he has broken the power of sin in our lives, we don't coddle sin. We don't treat sin like my daughter treats her little baby's dolls. Dressing it up nicely so it looks good. Walking around with it. Tending it. Nursing it. Keeping it safe. That's not what we are to do with sin. We are to hate sin and to kill it. Because the judgment that God brings upon the church is to purify the church. This is a difficult thing for us to understand, especially in our modern day. When the world out there is so miserable and bad, if we're honest with ourselves, we want judgment to start out there, don't we? We want God to start cleaning up the cesspool. And we can rattle off the ten worst places that he should start and what he should do, right? And this is not playtime stuff. God, would you please get rid of abortion in our land? Lord, would you please get rid of the constant promiscuity and things of adult sexual nature that plague our children in magazines, television, movies, and schools, right? We want judgment to start out there. But what God says is judgment starts 
in here, and then it goes out. You see? God purifies his church first, and he asks us to start with ourselves. Do you remember Joshua when everything was seemingly going wrong? And it was doubtful whether the Israelites would obey. And Joshua got up and he said, well, listen, if you would all just get your act together, then we could do something, right? No. What did he say? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Started with Joshua and his family and moved out immediately into where? Israel. And Israel became a shining light for the world because of that stand that they took. Because judgment starts in the house of God. If you have time this afternoon, I invite you to look at Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel plays this out in a very vivid way. He tells, God tells Ezekiel to go out, starting with the elders, and then throughout the city, and then to go out into the world and to place a mark upon those who truly believe in the Lord. Starting, spreading out. But you see, just because judgment starts in the church doesn't give everyone else a free pass. You notice what Peter says? Peter speaks directly to any of you this morning that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, if judgment begins at the house of God, what will be the end of those who do not believe, who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what would become of the sinner? You see, Peter is calling upon the unbeliever to forsake his unbelief, to go to the one who has broken the power of sin, to be changed, to be renewed. This is the call of the gospel. It's the reason the gospel is preached. Finally, to be like Christ is to understand God's reward. Because you see, knowing that judgment begins in the house of God means what? That God is present. God is the refiner. He is the one there refining His church. Where that suffering is found, the Lord is in the midst of it. In Malachi 3, the prophet says this exact same thing. He says the people rejoice at seeing the servant of the covenant. And he's going out with a winnowing fire. But they rejoice to see Him because they know He is there. Even in the crucible of the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus could rejoice because God was there. This is not just any fire that comes. It's a fire that comes to test, to prove, to refine. Well, finally, we've seen that Christ breaks the power of sin. We've seen that our suffering makes us more like Christ. And then we see finally that our suffering makes us look to God. It makes us look to God. We look to God as the one who judges us. We've already seen this and that judgment begins at the house of God. But notice verse 19. Therefore. Now when you see a therefore, what do you do? You look back and you see what the therefore is there for. And here what the therefore is saying is, because you know suffering, because you have a fiery trial, because Jesus has broken the power of sin, therefore, those of you who suffer... According to God's will. You are suffering according to the will of God. Your suffering should point you to the one whose will cannot be thwarted. 
He is the one who leads. God's will for us is our sanctification. It is to make us more and more like Jesus. And God will judge everyone. And He would rather judge us in a Father's correction, in the refiner's fire, than in the fire of destruction. Our suffering makes us look to God as the one who judges, but also God is the one we can trust in the midst of that judgment. I had an interesting experience when I was in seminary. I was counsel for a small company, and we were involved in a lawsuit. And the first thing that we did when we knew that the suit was going to go forward in federal court was we did a Google search on the judge. Tried to figure out who this guy was, what he did, whether we could get a fair shake from him. It was a little disconcerting to find out that the judge that we had is the district court judge who has been overturned on appeal more than any other judge in the entire United States district court system. Didn't give us a lot of faith that we were going to get a proper judgment. And so we, be, we began hemming and hawing on all sorts of things. We began planning for a loss even before we'd finished. How can we set up an appeal? What will we do if he doesn't act right? How can we arrange things? If we're not careful, that's what we can do as Christians. We line up all of our dominoes and we say, okay, now what will we do if God doesn't come through? If God doesn't provide that job, what will we do? If God doesn't heal me, what will we do? If I don't get into that college, what will I do? If, what will we do if we can't raise the money in the capital fund campaign? What will we do if people won't come to the church? How can we... What? The Christian is called to look to the Lord as one you can trust. You don't know which way the road is going to go. You don't know how high the highs will be or how low the lows will be. But you know where the road leads. It leads to eternity and being with the Lord. He is the one we can trust. And that involves a wholehearted commitment. We are called to entrust our souls to Him. Do you remember where Peter used that language of entrust? He used it in talking about our Lord, Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, and verse 23, He entrusted Himself to Him who judges righteously. God is calling you to have the same trust in Him that Jesus had. To be more like Jesus. And to trust to Him the most important thing you have. Not your 401k, not your health, not even your children. He is calling you to entrust your own soul to God. And if you think about it, that's Christianity in a nutshell, isn't it? The only hope we have, the only hope we have of redemption, of not suffering eternally, is trusting in God. It's the only thing we have. Nothing else means anything. Peter calls us to that. It's a wholehearted commitment in the sense that it also involves action. Do you notice Peter, good pastor that he is, how he ends this chapter? He says, you, will, you must entrust yourself while doing what? Good. He says, act like you think. If you're going to entrust yourself to God, act like it. You must take that and run with it, as we say. This is the one you must trust, because God is worthy. He is our creator, Peter says. He is faithful. He is a faithful creator. 
Our suffering should make us look to the Lord God. I hope that what we've seen this morning is that our suffering is primarily not about us, but about God and His purposes and His glory. Now, it does involve us. We don't want to be detached from our suffering, right? I'm sure Donna doesn't spend days whistling, saying, Oh, I'm not in any pain at all from my back. No, you take precautions. You walk slower. You sit in a comfortable chair. You act upon it, but you see that the Lord is working in the midst of it. Because God desires our good. He desires us to be like Jesus. And that takes us back to that first verse. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. That's what the Lord is calling us to. But you see, He's only calling us to suffering now, in the flesh. These days will cease. Every tear will be wiped dry. All sorrow will be banished. All pain will be gone. All regret will never be known again. That is where the road leads. And so I call you this morning to what Peter calls you to. To be like the Lord Jesus Christ in trusting God, in seeing what purposes God has for you, in obeying the gospel. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us through this Word from Peter. We pray, Lord, that you would make us more like Jesus Christ. That we would love you more, trust you more. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Amen.